0: Storms and flash flooding across southeast Queensland have claimed seven lives since Christmas, but households have now been warned to prepare for heatwave. More than 120,000 homes and businesses lost power during the extreme rain, lightning and wind. Queensland Energy Minister Mick DeBrenny says 63% of customers without power since Monday and Tuesday's unprecedented storms now had their services restored. Mr DeBrenny has said they are following the state's energy restoration plan.
1: What it outlines is that by the evening uh, of the 30th of December, that we aim to have 80% of households and businesses across the affected region have power resupplied. Uh, That by the end of New Year's Eve, so by the end of the 31st uh, of December this year, uh, we aim to have 90% of power resupplied.
0: Meanwhile, Federal Disaster and Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt has said residents should look out for warnings as the state braces for a heatwave.
2: We're only just beginning summer. Uh, We're likely to see other extreme weather over the coming weeks and
1: months, so please stay across those warnings because it could just save your life.
0: New Year's Eve could be a wet one for parts of eastern Australia with more severe weather forecast for the weekend. The Bureau of Meteorology says widespread showers and possible storms are set to return to New South Wales and Queensland today, Friday. Northeast New South Wales will bear the brunt of the rain in the state with isolated and possibly severe thunderstorms in New Year's Eve. Scattered showers are forecast for the remainder of the, of the coast with the chance of storms. Queensland is also expected to be hit with wet weather with isolated showers and thunderstorms forecast across much of the state apart from southeast. Anthony Albanese has wished all Australians Merry Christmas while paying tribute to those who are giving up their day to help others. Mr Albanese expressed his gratitude to everyone who's giving up their Christmas for the sake of others. In this time of celebration and reflection, we express our gratitude to everyone who's giving up their Christmas for the sake of others. In particular, our emergency personnel and Australian Defence Force members, whether here or overseas, our medical workers and our hospitality and those who give up for others through charities. Mr Albanese has also acknowledged it was an easy period for some in particular in the far north Queensland dealing with the aftermath of the floods. In his Christmas message, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, acknowledged that many people were struggling to make ends meet as the cost of living rose he also thanked those assisting people in need
2: the generosity and the efforts of our wonderful charity workers and volunteers epitomized the very best of our society
0: Doctors are urging parents to keep a watchful eye on potentially risky toys this Christmas as children are particularly vulnerable to eye injuries. Ophthalmologist Dr. Chanel Sharma says eye injuries can have a lifelong consequence and are far more common than people realise. The Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists Ranzico, says things like toy guns, swords and aerosols are particularly high risk. Dr. Shana warns injuries can be severe.
2: So eye injuries from these sorts of things can start with injuries to the cornea where you get an
0: ulcer. It can cause injury to the lid. But in worst case scenarios, it can go through the eye and cause complete loss of the eyeball as well as vision. Whilst children's eyes are particularly vulnerable, Dr Sharma says injuries caused by champagne corks are also very common. Ukraine Re- Ukrainians have celebrated Christmas on December 25th for the first time this year in efforts to shift away from Russia's historical influence. Traditionally, the majority Orthodox Christian population would celebrate alongside Russia on D- January twenty seven in line with the traditional Julian calendar. Ukraine passed a law earlier this year declaring Christmas celebrations would come early in a move their president says will help Ukrainians live their own lives. This will be the second Christmas in Ukraine since Russia launched its offensive in 2022. The workers of the Eiffel Tower have called on a strike over contract negotiations with the city of Paris. The strike coincides with the 100-year anniversary since the death of the iconic landmarks founder, Gustave Ivel. The workers say they are striking because they have concerns over the long-term prospects of the monument. Several tourists express their disappointment at not being able to visit the tower, which is considered one of the city's main attractions. The Eiffel Tower operates all year round and is expected to have a key role in the upcoming 2024 Paris Olympic Games. Australian supermarkets have started stocking their shelves with Easter hot cross buns. Despite Easter being three months away, Coles and Woolworths stores around the country have started selling the baked goods from Boxing Day. Some consumers have expressed surprise online that the product is being launched so soon. Woolworth's merchandise manager, Donald Keith, says the demand is there post-Christmas for the Easter treat. It's never too early for hot cross buns. I think our customers show each and every year that it's the right time to come out. We sell about 1.8 million hot cross buns in the first week, so we know our customers are looking for those traditional hot cross buns. Cole says it's aiming to beat its own number of hot crust buns sold last year of 2.5 million. The opposition is accusing the federal government of failing to help Australians over the rising cost of groceries. Labor said it's planning to review the food and Grocery Code of Conduct in October, but as yet no one has been appointed to lead the review. The Nationals' leader, David Littleproud, told 2GB it's time that supermarkets were held to account.
1: When you see a 60 seventy percent reduction in sheep and land prices you're only an eight percent reduction at the checkout someone's cleaning up and it's the supermarkets and then you look at even watermelons a dollar a kilogram they're paying the farmers but they're charging about four four fifty a kilogram and all you have to do is pick it out of a
0: paddock and put it in a truck. Police are urging beachgoers in New South Wales to hand in any barnacle-covered bricks of cocaine after several have been found washing up along the state's coast. Police say a member of the public alerted them to a mysterious parcel after discovering one in Magenta on the state's central coast. After more investigations, at least seven packages have been located along the coast so far, all between Sydney and Newcastle. Investigators are urging anyone who finds or may have seen one of the packages to contact local police. A man's body has been found following a search at the newly opened beach in Sydney's west. Emergency services were called to Penrith Beach on Boxing Day after a man was seen going underwater and not resurfacing. Three rescue boats and two helicopters joined the police search and the waterway was closed to the public. Emergency crews found the body of a man believed to be in his 30s. A report will be prepared for the coroner. The man-made beach in Penrith Lakes opened to the public just one week ago. As Australia braces for the increasing hot summer... There are concerns about ongoing drowning deaths. Since the start of the summer this year, Royal Life Saving Australia says there have already been 21 drowning deaths recorded across the country. That's three more than recorded on the same date last year. Six of those have occurred in New South Wales alone, with Surf Life Saving New South Wales CEO Stephen Pearce explaining this highlighted risk of drowning over the the festive period. We always have like, this really heightened peak of operational activity around Christmas and unfortunately, you know, particularly here in New South Wales, it's been a really tragic start and um, even you know since uh, 1 December, we're now up to six coastal groundings here in New South Wales just alone. A person has reportedly suffered serious injuries after being bitten by a shark at the remote beach on South Australia's York Peninsula. Police have responded to a report of a shark attack off Ethel Beach near Innes National Park at 1.30pm on Thursday. Ambulance crews rush to the difficult-to-access beach, which is located at the bottom of a large cliff. The attack comes a num- after a number of serious bite incidences in recent months, including fatal attack of a 55-year-old Todd Gendal at Grenitz Beach, on the state's west coast in October. his the second shark death this year after 46-year-old teacher Simon Bacchanello disappeared without a trace in May while surfing, surfing at Walker's Rock Beach, about 365 k's west of Adelaide in sailing law connect has come from behind to claim the sydney to hobart line honours soaring past fellow super maxi and O in the thrilling final law connect runner-up in the three past events edged across the river derwent finishing line 51 seconds ahead of her rival The pair, who were neck and neck the whole race, played cat and mouse in a light wind as they neared the finish. It is the second closest finish in the the Sydney to Hobart history after Condor of Bermuda beat Apollo by a mere seven seconds in 1982. The final finish time of Law Connect, skippered by and owned by Christian Beck, was one day... 19 hours, 3 minutes and 58 seconds. Christian Beck's son, Indy, told Channel Seven Sunrise that he couldn't believe his dad had done it. To be honest, like, when um, Comanche got that puff, I was like, all oh, right, that's the moment, you know, race done, pack it up. I thought it was done for us, just don't believe it, to be honest. That's, like, the greatest comeback in sailing, I reckon. It was absolutely amazing. In cricket, Australia heads into day four of the second test against Pakistan with a lead of 241 runs, largely thanks to Mitch Marsh making 96 in the face of a barrage of Pakistani swing bowling. Marsh joined Steve Smith with when Australia were reeling at four to 16, but their 153-run stand. Has likely batted Pakistan out of the match. Marsh and Alex Curry will resume at 6 for 187. And that is NITV Radio's news wrap up of the week. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio. Still to come on the show, NITV Radio's Saka Pachova speaks with Associate Professor Robert Amory and his decades long commitment to the Ghana language. Him and his colleague, candidate, or PhD candidate, Susie Greenwood, are piecing together history and language for a new generation. But first, let's take a look at some of the stories from NITV News' summer series, Rolf Deheer's film, The Survival of Kindness, and Johnny Narkel making a name for himself in basketball.
1: The Survival of Kindness tells the story of a black woman who's abandoned in a cage in the middle of the desert. She escapes and finds her way to the city, only to find more captivity. It's an allegory analysing race and privilege, and it got Rolf Deheer thinking. He decided to put control of the look, feel, sound and tone of the film in the hands of First Nations creatives. And I thought, here is an opportunity on this film, more than any film, for people to get their first go at being heads of department, to do the responsible jobs, because it will work. It doesn't have to be exactly like this or exactly like that. They can bring their own stuff into it.
3: When somebody trusts you, then it it really gives you that freedom. you know we spend a lot of time sort of Screenshot worrying if we're pleasing everybody else. but when we're part family, of a, a a group that you know, where all our expert knowledge can come out, you know then we st- when we create something
2: new. For production
1: designer Maya Coombs, it was a unique opportunity.
2: I got to marry work and culture together. And that was something that I haven't experienced before. And to kind of have the opportunity to work with other First Nations, like practitioners, is a rare opportunity that I hadn't had yet.
1: Like, like well, this is our first, you know, to, you know, doing this. And we did it. We actually, <laughs> you know, we, we did it. And, and Rolf had so much faith in us. As for the finished product, Rolf Deheer describes it as pure cinema. It's so much better than I expected it to be. And that's a combined effort from everybody. And it was a thrilling process for me. Now, you know, I feel established. I feel like I have a place. And now my future is, you know, it's looking really bright. Ricky Kirby, NITV News.
0: In Western Australia, the name Narkle is synonymous with Aussie rules football. But young Nunga and Yamachi man, Johnny Narkle is making a name for himself in the basketball arena. And he, there are high hopes he'll make it to the top.
1: For Geraldton local Johnny Narkle, sport has been a constant. Growing up playing basketball and football with his siblings... His passion for basketball has led him to the semi-professional NBL One League. Markham could have found Ralph goes himself. He helped the Geraldton Buccaneers take out its third WA championship title in the process, becoming the first Indigenous man to win the most valuable player award in a grand final. Yeah, it did feel good, like it's an honor. Like especially for past players and like emerging players for young kids young aboriginal indigenous boys and girls so it feels good someone to look up to
2: i'd give him some tips but i think he's got it sorted
1: his coach has used him as an impact player for the past two seasons you know it was a hard matchup for other teams that he was coming in yeah he's a seriously good basketballer and looking forward to seeing what's next for johnny as he goes from strength to strength the 22 year old has set his sights on the next level 100 percent want to do this and like I just want to like get to that next level and see if I can make it further. Narkel, two oh, yeah. for two. I think he needs an opportunity, and I think a lot of players and a lot of teams will be surprised at what he what he can offer. Johnny Narkle, Karen Cox, NITV News.
0: Welcome back. I am your host Noree Pakai, and you are listening to NITV Radio. Up now, NITV Radio's Saka Pachova talks with Professor Robert Amory.
3: The Ghana language is a language of Adelaide Plains, and it's now being revitalised. Associate Professor of University of Adelaide Robert Imery, has been researching the language for more than two decades now. He said that the Ghana language was long written off as a dead language, though Ghana people prefer to think of it as have been sleeping the last speaker of the language has died 100 years ago. The closest thing to a dictionary before now was written by German missionaries in the 1930s who documented about 2,000 Kana words. Speaking the language was once forbidden by white Australians and Kana all but faded from use by 1960s. But through dedicated collaborative work, the language has now been revived. And I'm now joined by Professor Robert Amery and his colleague from University of Adelaide, PhD candidate Susie Greenwood. Hello and thank you both so much for joining us on NITV Radio. Hi,
2: Sarka. Hi, Sarka.
3: Thank you so much for talking to us. And I will start by Professor Rob Amery. Rob, you have been studying the Karna language for over two decades now. But you started working in indigenous communities as a health worker back in the 1980s. What led you to to work with languages?
1: I find languages very interesting. I, because I went to a country high school in New South Wales, I never had an opportunity to study another language at school. I learned from Indonesian in my final year at uni and ever since then got very, very interested in languages. Then when I went to work in the Kimberley back in 1980, In those days, most of the old people had very, very little English, maybe just a few words. And it was very important for me to try and learn Bugaja in order to communicate in the health field. The blind doctor who, who used to visit, by his own admission, said that he practiced veterinary medicine. I can't blame him because he's visiting so many different communities, speaking different languages, but uh, that was the state of healthcare delivery in those days and probably hasn't changed a great deal to this day.
3: Mm. And what led you then to the south and to the Ghana language?
1: found myself here because my wife comes from Adelaide and having learned some strong languages up north, I was keen to put that, and, and having studied linguistics at ANU, I was keen to put what I knew into practice and was invited to some gardenry workshops by Brian Kirk, who was working at uh, what's now UDSA, uh, running some Gartendree and Naranga workshops. And so I got to know some local Aboriginal people through those workshops. And you know, one thing led to another, and uh, I've been working with Ghana for over 30 years now.
3: Mm. Yeah. And uh, Suzy, what led you to study uh, this particular language?
2: So, my journey's been very different to Rob's. In fact, um, I've only been in Australia for uh, just over 12 years now. And prior to that, uh, I was actually working in IT back in the UK. I always had a love of languages, um, but never had the opportunity to study languages beyond school, uh, got immersed in IT and programming and that kind of thing. So it was only when I moved out to Australia with my husband, that sort of better future for the kids and, and better weather and a work opportunities so that I had the opportunity to formally study languages and linguistics at the University of Adelaide I um, was fortunate enough to um, find the support of Professor Amory to be my supervisor. Um, and he mentored me, and um, I had the opportunity to get involved with working on the Ghana Dictionary Project which actually aligns quite nicely with the um, my own PhD interest, which is actually on the Revive language of Cornish, mm-hmm. which is where I was living in Cornwall back in the UK. So it's a, a very interesting mm-hmm. counterpoint to that, seeing the different context and how language revival works on different sides of the world. Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah, let's talk about how to rebuild a language. Rob, You've been working on, on this for 20 years and you're working on materials from the 19th century. Can you please tell us a little bit more about you know the history or how, how do you work with these materials?
1: Um, before we go there, Sarka, I might just go back to your introduction mm-hmm. where you were saying that Ghana people were forbidden to speak Ghana. I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. Tarkoman, missionary Takaman was forbidden to continue preaching in Ghana. And certainly the Pildewaddley School, which had been taught by Sherman and by Kloza, supported by Taikoman, taught in the Ghana language, was closed by Governor Gray, and those children relocated to the Native School Establishment on Kintor Avenue, which was strictly English-only english only the policy was to deliberately separate the children from their elders, from their parents. It's not quite as simple as saying uh, the Ghana people were forbidden to speak their language. Mm. I mean, those policies were disastrous for the Ghana language and the reason why the language um, ceased to be spoken probably had much more to do with the plummeting population due to introduced diseases uh, than anything else. And the remaining Ghana being uh, forcibly removed from their country, uh, sent over to Panindi in Angola country, and from there to to Point Maclay and Point Pierce in Narendra and Naranga country. I I don't know that they were kind of forbidden as such to speak their language.
3: Mm. But, yeah, certainly it was really hard for them.
1: Oh, absolutely.
3: And so how much, how many materials, how much do we know about the language?
1: Well, there's about 20 primary sources, people who collected uh, words, and in the case of the German missionaries, German, uh, a lot of phrases and sentences and some uh, sh- very short texts, altogether we've got three, three and a half thousand words probably from those primary sources. The German missionaries were the only ones to record a grammar. Some others, like uh, William White, recorded quite a few terms for plants and insects in particular, which uh, the German missionaries missed. There was a, yes, a surveyor's assistant who uh, took particular note of a number of uh, place names, and being a surveyor's assistant, he gave the section numbers. So we have a very precise location for those. Uh, Cawthorne had a very interest, strong interest in Ghana artefacts, so a number of artefact terms. Which no one else recorded have been recorded by Cawthorne. So different people had their own kind of interests and specialties. But the vast majority of what we know was recorded by those German missionaries. And as I said before, though they, they were the only ones to record a of grammar, mm-hmm. but without what the uh, information that they recorded, we really couldn't do very much with the Ghana language.
3: Mm. And so how do you work now?
1: Uh, Well, we've produced a range of pretty good resources, uh, a comprehensive learner's guide, the dictionary, which is uh, quite comprehensive in terms of drawing on the source material that we had, and um, the Ghana alphabet book. Uh, We've got a lot of online resources now, some games. Pack of Cards, which uh, Susie's son has turned into an um, online game of solitaire on the web, uh, as well as a Ghana version of Wordle, uh, which we call Waddle. A Pilda Waddley puppet show with um, a number of puppets. Pilda the Possum, who speaks both Ghana and English, and uh, Purika, Magpie, and um, Kungana, the Kookaburra, and Kula, the Koala, who tries to speak Ghana and makes lots of mistakes. <laughs> Um, and we use that humour generated to kind of make uh, language memorable.
0: That was part one of an interview with Robert Amory. Stay tuned for part two after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio. Next, we continue with part two of Professor Robert Amory and his commitment to reviving the Ghana language. Is
3: it a hard language to learn? The so difficult?
1: Well, no doubt, as you know, uh, learning any language takes quite a lot of effort.
2: Mm. So I would say that one of the uh, one of the challenges probably is the fact that Ghana and the other indigenous languages of Australia are different language family um, to English, very very different. So for most of the sort of Anglo-Australian population and also the indigenous people who may have grown up only speaking English, uh, it is a very different language. It works in a very different way. But thanks to the way that it was so carefully documented by the German missionaries, we do have a, a good grammar to work with. And it's just a case of trying to... your mind in a different way of thinking and a different way of speaking. You can't necessarily translate like for like. The language doesn't work in the same way. It uses uh, neat little endings for things rather than prepositions, you know, are in, at, on, over those little words. Nothing like that in Varna. It uses a system of suffixes. So it's, it it is different. And of course, there's sounds in Ghana that you don't find uh, in English or indeed in other European languages. So it is quite a steep learning curve, especially for people who may not have had the opportunity to to learn a second language uh, previously in their lives. So as an adult, it's always going to be harder. So there are challenges, but with the uh, with the training courses that uh, Rob and his wife, Marianne, are running, it's giving the opportunity to garner people uh, and other people in Adelaide to actually get to grips with the language and, and practice as well as using those resources, which is fantastic.
3: Mm-hmm. And what word? Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, Rob, go on.
1: The 24-page sketch grammar that as missionaries Tuckerman and Sherman did record, well, it resonates very, very strongly with what we know of uh, other Pamanyungan languages like, like Walfrey or Pidendata or uh, other languages up north which are spoken fluently. We don't have a complete record of the grammar of the language, uh, but what they did produce, well, at least it's workable. We can we can work out how to say most things that we want, would like to say. And I would add, too, that... Um, they recorded over 100 neologisms, new words for new things at that time. So tipogadla, spark fire for matches, for nullity, for key, the twisting thing, the twister, mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: and so on. So we can use those word formation patterns uh, that first language speakers of Ghana used at the time to talk about new things that were introduced to them to develop new terms for things that we have to deal with now. So uh, karakarati, the thing for habitually flying in is the aeroplane. Uh, mukandu, the lightning brain, is the computer. Lightning for electricity uh, and so on. And we mm. can be you know, fairly confident about the way those words are, are formed. And mm. uh, just to give you one little example, uh, many years ago now, uh, we needed a word for a year. And I knew from working with Yungamata up in northeast Arnhem Land that They use the word waltan, which means rain. It means wet season, and they also use it for year. So I knew Jungamata did that. I took the word waltati being summer, and I used that for year down here. And then I uh, checked a couple of years after that in William Wyatt's word list, and lo and behold, there it was, waltati, summer, year, recorded by William Wyatt. So it confirmed what I had already done oh wow but having not if i hadn't worked with those strong languages up north i wouldn't i wouldn't have the confidence to do what I do. It, mm-hmm. it gives me a sense of how these languages are structured semantically and the you know, the kind of structures and extensions that they use
3: mm-hmm. It sounds to me like this complete magic world of knowledge that you're kind of really getting into or you know like this magic world that could have been lost but it's not it's revived
1: yes yeah it's and sometimes we just have to we have to take certain guesses about the way some words are pronounced because there are three different r sounds in ghana for instance i'll just give you an example so hurry with an r like in english means creek or river buddy the short tap is uh maggot or rice but party with a rolled R, is lit, as in lit a fire. So depending on the R that you use, it has three different meanings. Mm-hmm. And we can't tell from the written record the difference between all those R's. Tuchelman and Sherman had a habit of writing both the rolled R and the rounded R, like in English, with a double R. So they spelled Puri, the Red Gum Forest River, the River Torrens here in Adelaide, all with double R's, Pari. Now, gara and wera do have a double R, a rolled R, but Ari is an R-like in English, even though it's spelled exactly the same way as the others. Mm -hmm. So unless we have a cognate word, the counterpart word in the neighbouring languages of Nubinu or Ajumatna, which were recorded by linguists, um, we just have to take a guess at what kind of R it is, what kind of T, what kind of N, what kind of L. I often wonder if I had Dr. Who's time machine and was able to travel back and talk to Galit Pinna or Molaweta Borka, those Ghana men who were the informants for the missionaries, whether they would understand me. I think they would, but it would be rather like, you know, a second language speaker of English, a Japanese person uh, and the confounding of the R's and L's. (laughs)
3: <laughs>
1: but but still. we can usually overlook that, right? The fried rice, fried rice phenomenon. We, we know from context uh, what people are trying to say, but it would be like that. Sometimes I would be getting the R wrong, but uh, we just try and do the best we can.
3: And so what is the state <clears throat> of the language now? Like, are there speakers? Is it possible to speak it as such, or is it used for certain occasions maybe?
1: Uh, the Garden language is mainly used for... Speeches of welcome to country, increasingly for of speeches of acknowledgement of country, but also a lot of naming of uh, people themselves, naming of Ghana children, of pet animals, um, all sorts of things, parks, walking trails, uh, programs, conference themes, any number of things have Ghana names these days. Uh, in terms of people using it to converse with, well, a couple of people have become quite knowledgeable and and quite fluent. Jack Ganyabuxkin would be the most fluent speaker. And um, he's been bringing his children up as at least semi native speakers of Ghana. There are some words that his children would only know in Ghana, some they would only know in English, some they know in both. Still a ways to go before it becomes a sort of language of daily conversation.
3: Hmm, hmm. And uh, what was the reaction of the community once the language was introduced to the wider community?
1: But to the wider community, well, I think quite positive by and large. Um, Well, a lot of people ignore the language, I guess. But there hasn't really been the negative reaction that I had anticipated. No, a lot of the reaction has been quite positive. Mm. And there's quite a demand from the non-Indigenous community for Ghana language courses to learn Ghana, for access to Ghana language materials. Many, many schools across the Adelaide Plains are looking for a teacher of Ghana, and that's a bit of a problem because we don't have enough people who have the knowledge and the training to be able to teach those programs. That's what we're trying to work on at the moment, to teach some courses through Tawandi College and Aldinga Pioneer College to Aboriginal people to teach their own languages.
3: Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, you already mentioned it before, uh, you two collaborated with other people as well on a new web page that has been launched, and it's aimed at people to help them learn the language. Can you tell us a little bit more what we can find on this on this page and where can we find it and who is it for?
2: So the, uh, the new GARNA website you'll find at Garnawara dot and it's a pretty comprehensive website it builds on work that was done quite I'm not sure Rob when was the older website 2005. 2005 so almost 20 years ago now there was an older website that sat on the University of Adelaide servers, but that was uh more a sort of research orientated it was a, a good repository for information Whereas this new website, uh, which is independent and actually run by and for the Ghana community, is, we hope, going to be a bit more accessible uh, to the wider population. We've divided it up so that you can find information about the Ghana people, uh, about Ghana place names, and also about Ghana language. On top of that, it's also a one stop shop where you can watch videos to learn a bit of Ghana. You can have a play of those online games that Rob mentioned, as well as actually purchasing resources, books, CDs, games, and other learning aids. And we've also got a section on there with some news and events of upcoming courses and things. So hopefully it's got everything on there that people might need. And the other thing that, that it will do Uh, hopefully, is to actually streamline and make it easier to respond to the overwhelming, in fact, demand for Ghana language from companies and organisations and schools and uh, just ordinary people who are looking for translations. So we've got a little sort of survey form on there. And if people Need some information and some words translated, or they have suggestions for naming a new school room or meeting room or whatever. Then we can actually process that much more easily now through the uh, online forms actually from the Ghana website.
3: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, before we finish, how do we say thank you in the Ghana language?
2: Well, there isn't really words for
1: thank you in Aboriginal languages, but uh, and Sherman tell us that. Oh, my dear older brother, exclusive to my dear older brother, uh, is so as much as to say thank you. So these days we just say, Thanks, or we use that longer expression with the kin term. Oh, my dear older sister. Oh, my dear older brother. Well,
3: Natalia, so much for joining us on NITV Radio and talking to us. Thank you.
2: Thank you, sarka
0: Thank you. you. Nakura. Nakura. That was NITV Saka Pachova speaking with Professor Robert Amory and his work reviving the Ghana language. And that's all we have time for today's program. You can listen back to the program anytime online or catch any of the stories on our website at sbs.com.au. And ITV Radio will be back next week with more stories from across the country. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend.